Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. So far, I'm really glad we were here. How about you? Wow. Yes, amen. Let's praise the Lord. I think our master deserves that kind of glory, and uh, some of that worship had me a little overwhelmed. Wow. The Lamb upon the throne. He is glorious and worthy to be praised. And the Lamb sacrificed to rescue sinners. And I won't claim... um, the Apostle Paul's line, but I'm close, among whom I'm chief. And uh, others of us may have felt that way. So uh, some of us are new and will not know the person I'm about to introduce, so I'm going to introduce him again. For others of you who've been around a while, uh, Gary Ingram is not a stranger to you. Uh, First time he was, second time here with his wife. They did a weekend seminar, which had a great impact. And uh, people really gleaned quite a bit from what he had to share. And I'm just going to say a few things by way of introduction because uh, he's got lots of time to preach. Like three hours I gave him. And uh, not really. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's on Arizona time. He's half asleep. Anyway. Uh, so, Gary, when was it we went to San Diego? 2005. 2005. So 16 years ago. I actually did the math and I got it right. Uh, That's amazing, by the way. There's a miracle at the works. And um, I was thinking about the songs we sang. I I checked with him knowing he was coming. Beautiful one, I love. And um, blessed be your name. I was introduced to the, they're my favorites, some of my favorites. Uh, I was introduced to them at a training for Living Waters which is a ministry designed to help people who are struggling with sexual same attraction and everything else that goes with our sexual brokenness. And it was, it was, it was riveted in my mind seeing people from all of these broken backgrounds that are not usually very welcomed in churches. Pressing in to know God. I remember Andy Comiskey, when he would worship, he's worshiping with all his might, singing those songs, just loving on God and watching them press in for the grace to help them. It'll never be erased from my memory. And I know I'm going to be worshiping with them in glory. Many of those saints I will reconnect with at that time. Years ago, Gary will probably tell his own story, so I won't tell the form. He came to a union center where we were ministering. God did a work in his life after his uh, background of sexual brokenness, and we put him on staff first as a business uh, administrator, and then later he became our pastoral care leader, pastor of pastoral counseling in our church. And now he has launched with his wife, Love and Truth Network, uh, trying to train churches and help them reach out to this needy population. Can I just say, I've said it before, and I think I have the Spirit of God. It is the defining issue of our generation. We are suffering the consequences of the Woodstock era of casting off all restraints indulging in what we used to teach people to resist, now it's our right, and the results these decades later are we're so confused we don't know which end is up. So I am going to just give a word for those of you who might have children in the room. It is PG-13 this morning, and if, uh, if uh, it uh, makes you nervous, uh, plug their ears occasionally, but I think really they hear worse out there in the world. So, frankly, I think we should have our ears open. And um, aren't you glad that God didn't say you were the kind of outcast that he couldn't reach? Because there aren't any. Are you all with me? There aren't any. God loves us and wants to rescue us. So, I would like you to welcome back to our pulpit. uh, Oh, and I have one more thing I have to say. Sorry, Gary. I got them all riled up and then I cut them off. We uh, have been having prayer meetings after church and it kind of fell by the wayside in the summer zone. So I'm just going to tell you, we're going to renew that. Not this morning as much, but in the weeks ahead. You want to, if you have time to stay after and pray for our church's health, we'll gather after people are dismissed. But this morning, Gary may open the door for you to come and pray. I'll ask leaders to come up and pray for those who may want it. And uh, let's, let's salt that with some 
Holy Spirit seasoning if people want to uh, walk into some freedom or whatever it might happen to be. So on that note, let's welcome Gary Ingram. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. My wife, Melissa, would have loved to have been here as well. Um, who is, uh, who's familiar with me or with us? Could you just put your hand up? And Okay, so a good number who aren't. Uh, so Melissa, actually, I took her to the Newark airport yesterday to fly back uh, to Phoenix, where we're from, and uh, got up to Pastor John and Sherry's and got the message that her flight and about a dozen others have been canceled. And so she would have loved to have been here. She's stuck in, uh, in the Newark, New Jersey area until uh, mon- uh, tomorrow. So <clears throat> anyway, she, uh, she sends her regrets for not being here. Um, so, the, so what I talk a lot about, obviously, is what our ministry represents. You can see our logo, uh, Love and Truth Network. And um, if you'd like to stay connected with us a little bit and find out, you know, what we're what we're up to, uh, about every couple of months or so. Trust me, I don't fill up inboxes by any stretch. But about every couple of months or every quarter or so, I'll send out a ministry update, a newsletter, and uh, if you'd like to stay up to date with us, you can just pull out your camera on your phone and and take a a, a picture of the QR code there. And it'll link you to where you can sign up for a newsletter if you have an interest. Or you can just go to our website and sign up that way, too. Um, but w- So we started Love and Truth Network back in 2013. And what we realized after having been on staff at Union Center Christian Church in the Endicott, New York area, I was on staff for 12 years. And um, can't believe that I even had the opportunity to do that, really. But we, we, what my wife and I began to realize is um, from... For me, growing up in the church and growing up in the upstate New York area, uh, I had ne- and I traveled all around the country a lot, just kind of moving from one state to another. Some of it with work, some of it was just kind of an unhealthy picking up and moving. You know, when I got bored or things were were difficult. And what we realized is is that the the church just does not typically deal with um, sexual issues well. Uh, the church does not uh, deal with certainly the LGBTQ issue well at all. And, and for me, as a young person growing up in church and having been to exposed to pornography at a very early age by some older neighborhood boys and some of their sexual acting out together uh, as boys, um, I was, it, it hit me at such an early age, and there was already so much dysfunction going on in my own family as well as in the church, honestly, uh, there was no place to go. There was nothing. There was no one to talk with about those things. I mean, don't we want to be a church where young people who are struggling, or adults, frankly, who are struggling, actually feel like the church isn't the last place they would go to, but it's the first place they would come to? Isn't that the kind of church that we want to have? Um, and 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 I, I agree that it is the kind of church that we want to have. It's the kind of church I believed that Jesus um, died to uh, uh, to establish. But the other thing, on the one hand, we say yes, but we have to recognize that in saying yes, we're also saying yes to a lot of messiness. We're saying yes to a lot of brokenness. We're saying yes to a lot of things that will trigger our own unhealed areas of uh, of struggle uh, or or maybe sin bents or whatever. And, and yet, it's what Jesus calls us to. And so the, um, one of the things I mentioned a lot when I was here the last time, the last couple of times probably, is what Melissa and I have found. And my, my wife is a licensed Christian counselor. She's not just a Christian. She's not just, yeah, just a Christian who is a counselor. She is a strong Christian counselor, believing that um, certainly there are uh, models of counseling uh, that, that she employs from, from her education and, and various experiences, but she absolutely believes in the power of Jesus Christ to meet with people and to, and to break chains of addiction. And uh, it's not just pray the thing, whatever that is, away, but the idea would be that, yes, Jesus has given us a, a way of um, God has given us provision just like the medical field, he's given us provision within the psychological field that there are some areas that can be really helpful in, in, in helping us as people work out areas of brokenness. And there's a lot of junk there too. It's not all good. But um, we've realized from, from her background and, and my background in the church that uh, we need to do a far better job of um, not just becoming not just reaching out to broken people and inviting them into our churches, but recognizing, first and foremost, that we are the broken people. 
Um, I'm going to say this and I'm going to move on because I harped on this the last couple of times that I've been here and I've harped on this actually in every church because the truth is we, we don't do a good job even in recognizing what I'm about to say and when we do recognize it, we don't do a great job of getting out of the rut that we're living in individually and as the church. Um, and, and so here, I'm, let me just present it to you, is I'm absolutely convinced, and it's not because I don't love the church, I do love the church. I'm absolutely convinced that most of us in the church are living double lives. And that most of us in the church have deep secrets that nobody knows anything about. A lot of it, if you look statistically, and I spend hours um, presenting this information, and so I'm just going to generally say, if you look at the statistics, um, people in the church, men in the church, women in the church, even Christian leaders many times, are the, the numbers of people that are caught up in regular use of pornography in the church are just off the charts. And to think that this church is the exception is silly. We aren't the exception. And, and, and that's just one area, pornography and um, other forms of sexual sin, uh, sex before marriage and adultery and all of those things. Those are realities that happen in the church on a regular basis. But where, where is the opportunity to really talk about those things? Uh, some churches do have programs that are designed to help people address those issues. But, you know, of a church of a thousand, you might have five people. Give me a break. I mean, that, that's, that is, that, that's so far below the people that ought to be in those groups. One of the, um, one of the women who actually is from, uh, Union Center Christian Church where, where I met Pastor John for the first time and where I was on staff with him and he was there for 22 years, I believe. One of the women in, in that church who was there for a long time, uh, her name is Sherry and her, her story is public, but she talks about the reality of finally coming to to grips with how she had been living for years out of a self-righteous perspective. And it was hurting her. It was hurting her family. She would look at someone like me and think, oh, thank God I'm not where that guy is, you know? And she would be kind to me and those kind of things. But internally, she would have that sense of, of feeling superior and better than and, uh, and, and the Lord broke that off of her. The Lord really met her in powerful ways over time. So my point in that is, you know, my story of coming out of, um, you know, at, at one season of my life, bartending at a gay club and, and fully embracing homosexuality out of Bible college. I left Bible college and said, I'm done with the church. God, I can't stand you. There's no answers for me. And, uh, and, and wound up embracing an identity as a gay man and living in that life for a period of time, uh, quite, a, quite a number of years. Uh, and so whether, whether the story, um, your story emulates that or is significant in terms of sexual addiction or brokenness, or if your story is anything from there over to the place where uh, you're a person who serves in the church for years. You're someone who's been married and not divorced. You're someone who has kids that you've homeschooled. We homeschool our boys. But whether, regardless of whether you're where I once was or where Sherry found herself in terms of, I'm fairly squeaky clean, clean but you know what? I'm living out not of Jesus' righteousness, but I'm living significantly out of my own sense of self-righteousness. I grew up in the church with people who had no clue how riddled they were with that issue. And what, so wherever you're at on the spectrum, we need to recognize that Scripture calls us, James 5.16, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other that you might be healed. 1 John 1.7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son cleanses us from all sin. There's a communal way, and those, those aren't suggestions, by the way, James is a command. Confess your sins to one another. <clears throat> and I know the last time that I was here, I just simply asked the question, pause for a moment and think, when is the last time that you had a thorough confession about your sin struggles with anyone? It might have been years. It might be never. The idea is, is, this, is this is a lifestyle, a way of living that Jesus has called us into. And very few churches in the West <clears throat> are living that out. And so what we're really calling people back to uh, as a ministry is this idea of living in vulnerability and transparency. We cannot help one another when we don't actually know one another. 
And you may know tons of facts about the person that you've been going to church with for five years or 10 years or two years or 20 years. You may know all kinds of details about uh, what they do for work and what's going on with their family. You might know the ages of their children. You might know all kinds of stuff, but you don't know the really deep stuff. And one of the things I've said more recently, I did not say when I was here the last time that fits into this as well, is um, what I, in, in more recent times, the last couple of months, I was, I was contemplating in some prayer time uh, about, about this particular issue, and I was reminded of Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, I had no idea John just preached on that. I was reminded of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and we all... and, and Having known their story out of Acts, I mean, what a tragic story, obviously. They sell this piece of property, they bring a portion of it to the, to the uh, disciples, to the apostles, and lie and say, this is the whole of it. And what I've realized is almost all of us are living like Ananias and Sapphira. We're not going and selling our piece of property that we may or may not have and bringing it to the church. I mean, some may do that. But what we're doing is, on a regular basis, we are saying, here's my image that I'm going to let you see, and I'm going to pack as much good stuff in that as I possibly can, because we've been trained to do that from this high. We've been trained in the church, or we come to Jesus as an adult, we come into the church, and we look around, and we feel like, oh my goodness, I am so screwed up, and everybody else has it together. If I'm going to fit in here, I can't let them see my stuff. And what we don't realize is, maybe on some level we do, but often what we don't realize is they're hiding their stuff too. They're just doing it better, right? And, and so what we do with, with this concept of Ananias and Sapphira is we put our quote-unquote best foot forward. We cast the best image that we possibly can. And what we say is, this is the whole of me. It's not... It's not a, what, what it's referred to in this, so this training that Pastor John and I went to back in 2005, this Living Waters training, the vernacular or the language of, of that program would say, we're, we're um, living out a good false self. We're presenting something good, but it's false. And it's not because, it's not because the goodness isn't real. It may be, some of it's not, but, but what, what it is, it, the reason it's false is because we're not letting anybody see the bad and the ugly. We're saying this is the totality of who I am, and therefore it's false. <clears throat> Satan doesn't, and when we see Satan tempting Eve in the Old Testament, in the beginning, um, in, in Genesis, when we see uh, Satan even tempting Jesus, um, Satan does not just pull out a whole bunch of lies. He usually combines truth with lies. And, and therefore it's deceptive, and we're oftentimes fooled by what he's, what he's doing or what he's saying. And so as the church, we have to start getting honest. If we want to be effective and, and authentic in reaching the world, if we want our church to grow in a way that doesn't, isn't just more numbers and bodies taking up space and chairs, but it's about making disciples, if we want to do that, we have got to put the good, false self to death. And the only way to do that is to embrace the reality of what God calls us into as followers, where he says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow after me, right? We have to, first of all, deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. And so one of the things that I'm um, really concerned about, Melissa and I are really concerned about, and I, I think many in the church are concerned about, many Christian leaders, um, is, is the reality that language is really shifting. And what words that used to mean one thing now don't mean that any longer, or they might have some harbinger to those things, but they mean something quite different, or they're shifting over time. One of those words, honestly, is the word love. And that's what we're talking about today. I mean, you see the, uh, the title of our message in quotation marks, Love is Love. And Love is, is lifted up and exalted as um, such a um, highly esteemed virtue, and it is, certainly. We read in Scripture that God is love. And in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, we want to take a look at that this morning, and I'll connect it back to what I was talking about earlier. We want to take a look at that this morning, and um, in, in, in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, what we're reading here is where Paul is describing um, 
all of these amazing ways that we can present ourselves, that we can live out um, powerful activities. But if we don't have love, those things mean absolutely nothing. So let me just read in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I've just become a major irritation at, at best. If I, don't, if I don't have love, if I have the gift of prophecy, the literal gift, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, I can, there's, if, if I'm as wise as Solomon or wiser, I know all mysteries, I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to be able to remove mountains, but I do not, isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, you know, that's an amazing thing. Think of a bunch of the superhero movies that are out, you know, they've been out for a long time, but all the new things kind of coming on the scene of superhero and all these amazing things that people can do. If I can do all of those incredible things, but I don't have love, I am, I am nothing, is what Paul says at the end of verse 2. And then verse 3, and if I give my possessions to feed the poor. Now, I don't know why you would necessarily do that if you weren't loving, but in a sense, that's what Ananias and Sapphira did too, right? They wanted the praise of man. They wanted to be recognized as virtuous. And so rather than selling a piece of property and bringing a portion of it, which is every bit their right to do, they lied instead and said, no, this is everything because they wanted to appear virtuous. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, if I'm willing to be martyred, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So we get the idea that love's a fairly important thing, right? Right? If, it's, if we can do all of this stuff, if we can go through all the motions, if we can do the, the church thing, and we, we um, have all kinds of Bible knowledge, I can't tell you the people that I've been around that, um, that love thumping on the Bible. They love the Bible thumping. My brother um, has been a pastor for, oh my goodness, I don't know, maybe 30 years or so. And at a former church many, many years ago, he had a, a man at his church that, it was a kind of a little country church, and he had a, a man at that church that every time my brother would get kind of heated and really um, pour on, you know, preach, uh, this guy would be like, oh, that was a great message. That was a great message, uh, brother. And, and he would say that every single time. And if Dale was a little, wasn't quite as fiery, if he was more gentle or he was communicating in a way that was more loving and inviting people uh, into, and maybe in a gentler way, this guy would be like, yeah, you've got to get back to that, uh, that hellfire and brimstone kind of thing. Years later, my brother found out after this man died that he had been sexually abusing all three of his daughters. So... It's just, I know that sounds extreme. Trust me, sexual abuse in the church of children is not extreme. It's extreme and it's horrible, but it happens all the time. My, my brother, who I just mentioned to you, and his, um, his wife, Faith, uh, have their own story. She has her own story of growing up in a home uh, with a pastor. Uh, her dad was a pastor. Her, she's the only daughter of, I think, nine kids, so eight brothers, I believe it is. And, um, and from the time she was 10 years old until she was 18, her dad sexually abused her during that time. And so they, they actually started a ministry, my brother and my sister-in-law, eight years ago or so, seven years ago, called Speaking Truth in Love. And the entirety of their focus is on exposing and helping sexual abuse victims within the church because it's such a massive issue. So we can think that, oh, these things are so, gosh, they're so rare and they're so unusual. Or Gary, your story is, uh, my story is so um, odd or unusual. Honestly, it isn't. My story's a dime a dozen in the church. So what is Paul saying here when he says, again, if I don't have love, we can thump on the Bible all we want to. We can know all kinds of theology. But if we don't actually have love and compassion to meet people in their place of struggle and need, it profits us nothing. It profits others nothing. And he goes on in verse 4, and he describes in two ways what love is. And the rest of the passage is about what love is not. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love is not jealous. In other words, what is jealousy? Love, the, jealousy is this idea that I have something and I don't want you to have it. 
I, I don't want, uh, it, envy is I want what somebody else has. Jealousy is I have something and I'm being really um, uh, uh, careful with it or I, I want to keep it to myself. Love is not that way. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly, verse 5. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. So let's just back up for a moment. So love does not seek its own. It's not selfish. Love is not only, it's not, love is not all about myself or just my own family. Love extends beyond those places. Love is not provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wow. That last thing? How are we doing in the church about not taking into account a wrong suffered? That's been a tough one for me. How about for you? Not taking into account a wrong suffered, or wrongs suffered. Always assuming the worst about someone's behavior or being unwilling to go and clarify with them what they meant and just taking up an offense instead. That's a huge problem in the church, frankly. And yet that behavior is not, it, it does not demonstrate love well. I want to pause there for just a second and say, the, the churches that I grew up in, uh, there were several that every time that I, I love my dad, my dad, dad has passed away, he's home with the Lord. And my dad and I had a terrible relationship growing up. And then later when I became an adult, uh, he and I really developed a close relationship. So if I reference him in terms of my childhood, uh, it was really broken. And, um, and later, you know, he actually asked for my forgiveness uh, later as an adult and, um, and, and we did have many years together where, where we had a good relationship. But as a, as a kid growing up, I mean, basically my dad would do just what we talked about a moment ago. Take, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. He often took into an account a wrong suffered. And he'd get mad at the pastor about one thing or another, and we're off to another church, you know. And, uh, and we're at that church for a period of time. And then you know, maybe years even. And there would be something that he'd kind of get his nose bent out of shape over. And now we're on to some other church. Um, and, and so this, but most of the churches that I grew up in were churches that were theologically sound. And you know what? Today I'm very grateful for that. I had a lot of truth that was poured in. But you know what? When all you have is are your facts correct scripturally and there's no compassion or little compassion and there's a lot of sweeping under the carpet of all of the garbage that goes on in the church and we pretend that everything's wonderful and everything's fine and if you really have a problem you better go figure out how to work that out yourself and don't bring that into the church that's the antithesis of what that's the opposite of what jesus meant for the church to be and that was the way, many, in many ways, those were the churches that I grew up in. And so I developed as a little, I mean, I was, I was born, you know, in going to church. Uh, and, and so I was around it all the time. And what I realized a number of years later, looking back, is as a teenager, uh, and, and as one that was exposed, as I said earlier, to pornography and other sexual behavior at like the age of five or six, which frankly, uh, what I experienced is nothing compared to what kids are experiencing today nothing. I saw images, which were, which was damaging enough. There was some sexual behavior, which was very damaging. It was a one-time event for me, but, but kids today with a couple of clicks, they're seeing unbelievable stuff in video and, um, and other, and other experiencing other sexual brokenness and behaviors. That's so damaging for them. But when, when we're raised in the church and all we're hearing is a lot of theological truth and not experiencing the compassion and love to go along with that, what I began to feel in my teenage years is that God is a slave master that demands we love him. I, and, and, and so what I feared the idea of going to hell, I feared being separated. Um, I didn't really fear so much being separated from God. I feared hell. And so I prayed the sinner's prayer, you know, as a kid, a number of times growing up, and uh, because something something didn't feel like it was taking something wasn't right in my um, in my experience, and, and here's what it was. Here's the key thing: 
is that um, my view of God was all twisted up, as I was just saying. And frankly, I think many of our views. Now, I could have told you intellectually the right view of God. We all have an intellectual understanding and more of an experiential reality. And oftentimes those things are very much um, uh, in contradiction to one another. Have you ever thought about that? Have you, have you contemplated that yourself? Like, what do I, I know what to say about God. I know what the scriptures say, and I can say those things. And I can even say, I believe those things. And on some level, I do believe those things intellectually, but at an experiential level, sometimes we believe the absolute opposite because that has been our experience with God and with the body of Christ. I'll never trust others, etc. And so it was in that difficult place when I was asking, when I was praying for salvation, the, there was no surrender in it. I didn't like God. And again, I grew up in the church. There was no surrender in it. And part of my struggle is I felt like a uniquely broken freak growing up in the church because nobody else ever had any problems. When we had, um, when, when the pastor would ask every Sunday for prayer requests, it was always, you know, a prayer for Aunt Millie's cancer or um, somebody broke an arm or a leg on the farm. And of course, all those things should be prayed for, but it was always about those physical things and there was nothing else. And then the pastor would say, well, are there any un- unspoken prayer requests? Boom, yeah. boom, right? And what I realized, what that modeled for me as a little guy growing up and looking around and seeing all these hands go up, all these are unspoken requests. I have no idea what they are. They can't possibly relate to anything I'm struggling with in my brokenness. And on top of that is these people obviously don't trust each other. It was a church of like 25, 30 people, right? And, and, but, but what, what, what I experienced in that church is what most churches are. Do you really trust? Think, think for a moment. Do you really trust the people in this church? Really, you trust them with certain things. Pastor John says I'm meddling. Yeah, you trust them with certain things, but do you trust them with your heart? Do you trust them with your brokenness? Do you trust? And here's the key thing. It's not until we're willing to reveal our brokenness and our struggles that we can actually receive the support to break through those struggles. As long as we're going to hold on to them, as long as we're going to keep those in secret... We are going to struggle with those things by ourselves. And many of us have gotten to a place where it feels like, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. And so I grew up in a lot of, in the churches where I would say, and went for many years to churches where there was a, a lot of noisy gong going on from verse one, a lot of clanging cymbals. There was lots of truth. There was, um, there were people talking, you know, having, having faith and revealing the mysteries of scripture and all of that, which again, I'm not discounting that those things are really important, but they have to be combined with love or they are empty and they are worthless. And, and it is love that compels us to push through our lack of trust. You don't, do you know that everybody has a lack of trust? We say, I have trust issues. Welcome to the human race, right? <laughs> we all have, and you know what? Some of us have much deeper reason to not trust than others. Some of us have been so badly wounded by people and by, by the people who should have loved us the most, our moms, our dads, whatever. And, and how, if that, if I was wounded here and I wasn't loved here, how could I possibly be worth loving or how can I possibly trust others to love me outside of my own biological family? And we believe the lie that Satan's selling us that we have to, we can only reveal a little bit and the rest we all have to keep internal. I want to pick up in verse six with first uh, Corinthians 13. Because I, one of the ways that love has been distorted in our culture is this concept of, well, love is love. So whatever love you feel, whatever love is, whatever that looks like for you, whatever your truth is, you know what? You don't have your truth. There's only truth. Biblically speaking, from a biblical worldview and God's perspective, he reveals truth. He is the one who reveals truth. And we either agree with that or we don't agree with that. But it's, the truth is based on what, what he has revealed to us. And, and so what I'm concerned about is, is that in many churches where I grew up, again, there was this legalistic, very um, fundamentalist, um, theology-thumping perspective. 
And, and a lot of uh, churches don't want to be like that anymore. They recognize how damaging it was. And the pendulum, though, has swung. And now we have so many churches. We still have some of those churches. But now we have many churches that are now over here. And nearly everything is acceptable. Every, wherever you're at, it's who you are. And, uh, and, and, you know, whoever you are, you just need to accept yourself. And God loves you. You know what? The scripture says, obviously, um, that God loves us over and over again. That's a settled issue. But in John 14, twice, uh, Jesus asks the, says, makes the statement that if you love me, you will obey me. Like God's love language is obedience. Not because he's the slave master that I used to think he was, but because he knows that what he is, the way that he's designed life, the way that he's created us to thrive is according to what he has um, predetermined for humans uh, for human behavior to thrive. If we're going to thrive, we need to, to agree with God and come into alignment with him. Whenever we're outside of alignment with God, we're not thriving. And so this, the, in verse 6, I think that this is an important uh, part to remember of what love is. It says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We've got, certainly in culture, what, was, what's, what God says is evil is being referred to as good in culture. And, um, uh, however, and, and honestly, I think the church, a lot of responsibility lies at the foot of the church for, for why culture is in that place. We've not loved well. In many cases, we've not loved well. We haven't been honest about our own sins and struggles and, and we've lied and pretended again, we've done the Ananias and Sapphira thing and this, and the culture is sick of it, sick of it. Young people are sick of it. There's so much confusion. It's not just about sexuality. Now it's identity. There's so much confusion. And I lived it for a long time. But here's, here's something I just want to say as well. I wasn't planning on. This is a freebie. Is that um, you, you may... I'm not, I haven't shared much of my story. I'm not going to get into it today. I don't have time for it. But having lived as a gay-identified man for a number of years and feeling like... I'd finally found my people when I left the church and left Bible college and found my first gay bar. That's, that's a rather um, startling thing when you think about a kid that grew up in the church. Um, but in that, in that place of, of identity confusion, you all may recognize, oh yeah, I mean, he really had some, some big identity confusion. But if we, if we think about the fact that God in Genesis made us male and female in his image, he made us as men to live out an aspect of his image and as women to live out an aspect of his image that have equal value. And the church has messed that up in the past too, hasn't it? They have equal value. That doesn't mean that our callings are identical, but we have equal value in terms of how God intended us to live out his image. And you know what? We are totally confused about what that means. We have assumed that just because I'm a guy attracted to women or I'm a woman attracted to guys, I'm good when it comes to identity. Are you kidding me? We have, we are just as confused in the heterosexual world about our identity as image bearers as anybody else's. And so we are on equal footing at the foot of the cross when it comes to that issue. We need to relearn as the church, what does it mean for me as a man to live out the image of God, this incredible treasure that I've been given. How do I help my wife? How do I help my, my, my sisters in Christ? How do, how do I, as a, as a woman, uh, bless my husband in his image-bearing uniqueness instead of letting it be the battle of the sexes and, and, the, and what, you know, what we despise in our spouse? There may be some really broken things. Of course, they're broken things. But what we often lump into that despising or frustration or sometimes hatred is the image of God in them. And we don't even recognize that we're doing it. So again, in verse six, what is love? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We in the church need to repent of the first three verses, oftentimes, of the way that we have lived out theological truths and realities without compassion, but we also need to come down to verse six and recognize, my goodness, we're in a state today in the church where, where we are approving everything, we're rejoicing with everything, nearly everything, 
and we are completely confused. But love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is not, uh, you know, it isn't just what culture says it is. It's what God says it is. So a definition, I think an accurate biblical definition of, of the concept of love is that I desire the best for another. It's to desire the best for someone else. And who is the one who knows what's best for another? It's our creator. It's our designer. And so I know what's best for myself and for another based on what God says. Meaning, I, I, I don't have the right or the authority, and sometimes this happens in spiritual abuse, to, to dictate and control somebody else's life. That's not what I'm talking about. But there's, there are, there's boundaries for us to live within where God says, yeah, this is off limits over here. This is where you're going to get in the weeds. You're not going to thrive. You're actually going to be on a path toward death over here. And then there's another uh, place over here where, like, where this is more, this is legalism and, and, uh, and bitterness and, um, a lot of anger and I mean just a lot of stuff that just goes along with a, a legalistic um, perspective and then over here there's there's just license you can do any whatever you feel like doing it's all good God's totally fine with it it doesn't matter and by the way we're not stopping at the door culturally we're not stopping at the doorway of gay or lesbian or transgendered polyamory is coming to your church to everyone's church polyamory is is this perspective that I can live with multiple people and I can be in relationship. I can be married to multiple people, not just one. That is, if you don't think that that is already here and beginning to grow, you're mistaken. It is absolutely. And that's not the only thing. There's a lot of other issues too. Transhumanism uh, and, and the, the, the combining of, um, uh, and I, I'm, I stay up on this stuff and I'm probably not even seeing all that's, I'm not seeing all that's coming out about this, but even the, the idea of, of machine and people trying to extend life, trying to improve health, uh, trying to, um, do, to do a variety of things to, to enhance uh, humanity. There's all kinds of stuff on the horizon, and, and we're still, we're, we're not even dealing with some of the most basic things, our own stuff. So in, in Matthew uh, chapter 7, and I'll wrap up with this. In Matthew chapter 7, um, Jesus, it's kind of the most popular verse uh, these days, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it's where Jesus says, um, judge not lest you be judged. And so everyone knows, well, judge not. Just throw that out there, right? Um, but that is not at all what Jesus was talking about. Of course, he's saying, um, do not judge. And he goes on and says, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. There you go, uh, verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. But he goes on in the next few verses, and he is saying... First, remove the speck that is, the beam that is in your own eye so that you can see clearly how to help your brother or sister remove the speck that is in their eye. He never was saying, don't have a right judgment. He was never saying, don't help your brother or sister. What he is saying is, back the truck up and recognize you've got some ugly, nasty stuff in your life that you're not letting anybody know about. And to avoid your own junk, you're focusing on someone else's stuff. And what he's saying is, he's not saying don't help somebody who's struggling or don't point out the fact that, um, that they're embracing sin, but can we back up and actually get real and honest about our own stuff communally? And so this concept of love is so essential I'm just going to read the last verse of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, not the last verse, the seventh verse. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And then the very beginning of verse 8, love never fails. The worldly concept of love that most Christians have, uh, have embraced utterly fails. God's view of love, God's perspective of love. Our ministry name is Love and Truth Network. You cannot divorce truth from love and still call it, you can call it love, it's not love. Those things have to be combined. And we have to first step back and be willing to say, Jesus, where's the beam in my eye? Would you help me be willing to let some other people into that space? 
And would you help me, Lord, from that place of of healing and restoration, have the compassion to lovingly and gently help my brothers and sisters? Is that happening in your community? That's what Jesus is calling us to. So I just want to take a moment and just invite you to come forward. Whoever is aware that you need more biblical love in your life, you need the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, the kind of love that the gospel calls us to, of desiring the best for another, I'm just inviting you to come forward. If you have a desire to come forward and simply say before the Lord, God, um, I'm willing for you to touch my heart. I'm willing, God, for to embrace an authentic love. I realize maybe this is where you've been. I realize that some of my love has, has gotten really sloppy. It, it, um, and, and I've given a lot of, um, I'm not living according to your word, either in my own life or in other people's lives. But Lord, I'm inviting you to show me how to do that more thoroughly. I'm inviting you to show, to, to, to show me how to do that in a way that is, that's more authentic. Maybe there's an issue in your life that, that's been, uh, where you've had a struggle and you've, uh, you've not been walking in victory. Whatever that issue is, you've not been walking in victory. God, I want to be somebody who can actually help my brother and sister, who can actually help people in the world with their struggles. But I have first, according to, to um, Matthew 7, I have first got to allow you and some others to deal with my own stuff and to help me with that. We cannot do that in isolation just between us and God. It does involve community. So if you desire to have God more uh, lived out more fully in your life with regard to love, would you just come forward and let me just pray for you? Just come on up. And uh, we're just going to do a, a little bit of, uh, of music in the background. But I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. You know, I, in, when I grew up in church and in my teenage years, there were so many things I would feel God um, tug at my heart over. And I would sit there and I'd rationalize it. Well, do I need to go forward? Do I, do I really want to go forward? And, and I, I oftentimes felt like, well, if God wants me to come go forward, basically my attitude was he'll sort of blow me out of my seat. Well, you know what? That never happened. And, uh, and what I've realized now is when I'm given an opportunity to actually come forward and present myself to God, I don't care what it's about. I'm going to get off my uh, bottom and I'm going to come to the front and I'm just going to say, God, I don't know what you have for me in this. Or maybe I do, but I need you. I need something. I am, I am sick of living a mediocre Christian life. I am sick of going through the motions and being owned by a certain area of sin or multiple areas of sin. I am sick of my broken relationships. I'm sick of being a common denominator in my broken relationships and wanting to blame everybody else. I'm tired of knowing that I need to be in the word more, that I need to be in prayer more, and I just don't do it. I'm tired of the fact that I have come under the delusion of what the world defines as love. And I need to be recalibrated. I need you, Lord, to help me understand and embrace the love you have. If that's where you're at, any of those things, again, I just wanted to invite you to come forward. It's not too late to do that. Jesus, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters that are just saying, yes, Lord. There's confusion, there's fear. Oftentimes it's pride, fear, shame that keeps us walking in the shadows, that keeps us bound to sin. Lord Jesus, would you meet with each one of my brothers and sisters who are presenting themselves and saying, here I am. I need something. You may be clear on what that is, you may not be, but Jesus, Holy Spirit, you know you know. Lord, we just invite you to just come as the good shepherd and minister to your sons and daughters, your brothers and sisters here. Father, would you come? Jesus. Lord, would you help this to be there in my life I can look back and there there are stones of remembrance there are there are um, times and moments and events 
that were absolute game changers. I still needed to walk out discipleship. I still needed to put one foot in front of the other and say, yes, Lord, afterward. But there were ways that those were defining moments where a stake was put in the ground. And I'm asking for these good men and women, Lord, made good by the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm asking for these men and women, these sons and daughters of yours, that this would be a stake in the ground moment. Not that there haven't been others, but this would be a stake in the ground moment. This would be a defining moment in their life where they're never going to go back. Not that they aren't going to struggle with issues that are familiar, but where they're never going to go back to embracing an identity of brokenness. Like that, like that is something they have to wear. That's something that they can do nothing about. Lord, thank you that our identity is in Jesus and it's in who we are as your image bearers and that you have called us into kingdom things. Lord, we want to be free. We want to be free to actually pursue kingdom realities. We want to be free, Lord, for our lives to have deep, eternal meaning. Rather than just... C.S. Lewis talked about the, the, the little street urchin who's sitting in the, in, in, um, in the slums and playing with uh, uh, mud pies in, in, the, in the mud and the dirt and the muck and refusing to go on a holiday to the ocean because they have no concept of what that looks like. God, would you help to lift us out of the, of the empty and worthless and destructive things that we're playing with and that, that may be a job or a career, that may be any nut relationships, that may be any number of things that you've said no to, and we've said, yeah, no, I'm, we're not actually going to follow you in this. God, bring us back to a place of, of, of real surrender, not just some, some tips and techniques to try to clean up a broken, fallen self, but Lord, a real surrender a dying to the good false self and a desire, Lord, to actually be whole rather than care so much about the appearance of wholeness. That we're putting on these coverings to cover up the brokenness, putting on these activities and these acts of service to cover up the pain and the emptiness and the brokenness inside of us to present ourselves better than we are. Lord, would you let this be a landmark change in our life July 18, 2021. Let this be a stone of remembrance of a a new direction in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.